Hello listeners, I'm Kathy Fang with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. In addition to our regular programming, we are pleased to bring you the following discussion, presented as a part of a series by the Org Gallery. This talk was recorded on Zoom on November 26, 2020, and is the first of two artist talks in conjunction with the Gas Imaginary Exhibition, curated by director-curator Denise Reiner. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us online. I'm Denise Reiner, Director Curator at Ore Gallery, and this talk is in connection with our current exhibition, The Gas Imaginary, on view at Ore Gallery from October 2nd through December 19th. I would like to acknowledge, first of all, that I'm speaking from Vancouver, Canada, a city located on the unceded traditional territory of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish First Nations. I'm joined by Rachel O'Reilly, who is an artist, writer, poet, curator, and PhD researcher at Goldsmith Center for Research Architecture. She teaches the theory seminar at the limits of the writerly on planetary political economy and poetics at the Dutch Art Institute. And she is joining us from the Mbarntwa on Arun's territory. Its colonial name is Alice Springs, Australia. And I'm also joined by Dr. Denise Ferrara da Silva, whose work addresses the ethical poetical challenges of the global present. She is the author of multiple essays and publications, including Toward a Global Idea of Race, Davida Impagavel, Unpayable Debt, with which she's a co-editor with Paula Chakravarti of Race, Empire, and the Crisis of the Subprime. And her artistic works include the film Serpent Rain and Four Waters Deep Implicancy in collaboration with Arjuna Neumann. She also works on relational art practices such as poetical readings and sensing salon in collaboration with Valentina de Sideri. And Denise joins us from her home on the Musqueam First Nation. Throughout the period over which Rachel O'Reilly developed her project, The Gas Imaginary, she's had ongoing conversations with many people, including Denise, directly and through text, thinkers, and ideas that run throughout both of their work. So it's great to have them both here in conversation to discuss the ideas around The Gas Imaginary and the work that they're doing now. Thank you very much. Hi, hello everyone, and thank you, Denise, for um, the invitation to be part of the program and speak with Rachel. It is really very significant and important to talk about this work, especially as I speak, I live and now work in the Muslim Reservation here in Vancouver. Rachel, as usual, it's really amazing to be able to talk with you about your work and, you know, and other things. Yeah, I have a few, a few questions that I would like to share and, and hear your response to them. But before I, I get to my obvious, I mean, some of them probably very opaque questions, that is just something that came to me as I was reading your April 2018 essay on Iflats. And the title of the essay is Dematerializations of the Land Water Object. And the essay opens with this, what I think is an image statement. And it's an image statement that to me runs through the exhibition. And it's a quote that you got from Geoscience Australia. And the quote goes like, and the unknown frontier is death. 
of course, is related to, to fracking or that we're looking at, but I think this indicates, this brings out something that is in the drawings, in drawing knives, right, sorry, the film and then in fractions, but also in the drawings, in the exhibition, the timeline, the maps, the photos, you know, all that comes together in the exhibition. And I, I like it, I responded to it because I found that it immediately brings what seems to be happening somewhere, elsewhere, over there, down under, you know, as far away as Queensland and the Northern Territory in Australia, which are far away for somebody who lives in Melbourne. And then thinking here, also something as far away as Alberta and British Columbia, which it seems like that for somebody who lives in Toronto, Canada. And then as far away as Amazonas and Mato Grosso, which are very far away for someone who lives in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And that's what is it about. Of course, it's about coloniality and extraction and the ongoing extraction and extinction that marks coloniality. So it is about the Coast Gas Link Pipeline that's set to run through 190 kilometers of the unceded lands of the Vatuatan First Nation here in BC. It is about the expansion of farming and mining in the Brazilian Amazon and the wetlands which, you know, again, expelling indigenous populations from the land. And in the case of your work is about mining and fracking on Aboriginal lands in Australia. And I think I was attracted by it because in a way, in a very, I think, appropriately mediated way, these words, they're the words of a government body, right? Not a person. And they immediately give out the stakes. The stakes, which to me are about the implications of policy, policy with economic and the scientific. And this statement image shows how inseparable they are. And I think this is what your work is also showing, this exhibition is showing. And this is something that I would like to hear you maybe reflecting later, because my first question is a different one. But about what is it that you're doing? How do you do it? I find it is a, something that one could call a and historic tracking of coloniality and raciality. But, you know, we'll hear you talking about it. I'll go back to that later in our conversation. But before I go there, I have this obvious question for you, which is like, how did you came to this project? How did it come about? Where do you start? Uh, I don't know. What was the first question or first thing that came to you? If you could share it with us. Thank you so much. For that, yeah, for beginning in this way, I guess. So I grew up on Garangaran country on the East Coast in a small port town, which has quite a significant relationship to the mineral wealth that gets exported from the north of the country. It was a huge coal port before it became a gas port. But I was particularly interested in having grown up there and left there and working, you know, as a moving image curator in the capital city about six hours away. I was going back there a lot. Actually, my, my dad was dying at the time and I was just spending way too much time in town experiencing the very accelerated changes to the city as a result of the construction boom around the gas infrastructure. And my uncle was actually a, a union delegate on that construction site but had been doing that work, you know, on every previous major kind of modernist construction plant in the whole kind of state, as did my grandfather. So I kind of had an informal understanding of the history of industry and how different this industry was, even in their understandings of extractive industry. But the thing that actually 
made me think about it aesthetically was going to some of the first community meetings after one of the biggest dredging projects in Australian history was put to work on the harbour to make the harbour deeper for the big gas ships. The result of that dredging operation contaminated the harbour and upset, you know, all of these layers of industrial toxins that were at the bottom of the harbour and many fish died, turtles died, dugongs died. It was a huge kind of cover-up of causality. So we were going to these community meetings and, you know, sitting face-to-face with the consultants whose job it was to say that it wasn't a problem. And it was at that moment when, you know, they explicitly said to us, you're the community, you're not going to get access to the science on this water monitoring. That's not your job because you're not trained scientists and it's been privatised anyway. And the kind of the way in which they were using language and images that were deeply unscientific to cover up, you know, the degree, the plan, the future plan that was also extremely vague as a kind of operating plan. It was that relationship between, you know, anti-empiricism and ambitious extraction that I found super interesting, you know, as processes of real abstraction on the corporate side. And as a settler, you know that the language that you have for your landscape is extremely violent already because you don't know the local language for, you know, the materiality of the landscape. And then to see the kind of next layer of capitalization of that poverty-stricken language achieve so much in such a short period of time. I think that was my, so someone with a literature background, that was how I kind of really had an immediate reaction to the kinds of operations that these approval processes use and need to kind of rematerialize people's understanding of what's happening very, very quickly. So yeah, I kind of started writing poetry as a result of going to that community meeting for the first time in 20 years. And then the poems kind of turned into I wanted to write a book and then I just couldn't write the book because I didn't have a single empirical fact that could go into the book that was provable in a court of law because all of it was inaccessible, basically. So it kind of turned into an art project because it was not obvious that I could do anything else at that point in relationship to what was going on. Amazing. Yeah, it's interesting that you are what called your attention, what seems to have grabbed you is precisely the poverty of the symbolic in that I'm thinking the symbolic in terms of the language being poor, but also the lack of scientific evidence, which is obviously one would expect of these partnerships between the state and when it's opening up to to corporations. But you said something as, as a settler, growing up as a settler in that space. One of the things that I could not not notice or you know perceive, I should say, is how for instance, in Infractions, in the film, we don't see you, right? I mean, I think in Infractions, we see you. I think it's you fishing. Is that you? Yeah, that, that's, that's me fishing. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> we see your back. So those of us who know you know it's you. But still, you're very present. And I think it's not only because of your voice over in drawing rights or you asking questions in, in Infractions. And that presence, absence, you've been there. Of course, you are there in other ways, but, you know, these more, you know, direct ways. So that made me wonder about two things. On the one hand, it made me wonder about how the settler, the figure of the settler, the, you know, here in particular, the white Australian, you know, thinking of, you know, that figure as a political figure, as an economic and legal, juridic, colonial, racial figure, how that figure comes across in the work. And 
so it's not about how you want to portray that figure if you're presenting the figure. I don't think that you do that. But I can see the figure there being hailed somehow, being interpolated. And I think that, you know, that's a moment of production, even though it's not identified this way. So anyway, so now that, you you know, you get to this moment in the work as the exhibitions are here. So do you, do you have a sense of how he, she, they come across? Maybe, I don't know, from your point of view of, or somebody else who is looking at the work on other folks, white or, you know, black, indigenous people of color, Australian. And then, of course, if you never thought about it, yeah, if you don't find it interesting, you don't have to to answer the question. <laughs> I'm just, and then, of course, if you, you don't, you can tell me why you wouldn't answer the question. But I'm interested in that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think about this a lot. So, you know, there's multiple beginnings of this project. Another beginning, there's about five beginnings, but another beginning you know, is the fact that when the fracking industry installed itself here, the first drills, the first rigs that were kind of set up, it went to some of the whitest agricultural farmlands in southwest Queensland. And the history of those pastoral areas is extremely violent, but also extremely well known as a space of guerrilla resistance, like pan-Aboriginal resistance to pastoral expansion. And at the time, you know, the first anti-fracking activist films and organising was all about, you know, this figure of the white farmer losing his, you know, his Australian dream once the corporations invaded after 1989 as if we had no corporations before 1989 in the country. So I was really interested in, I'm not sure I would have been so ambitious about this work pedagogically if there wasn't actually such a strong resistance movement to the industry. But the fact is that it was the biggest environmental movement, you know, of the neoliberal era, I think you could say. And it was also, you know, like the whitest, you know, in in many years. So I really felt it was kind of an interesting moment as someone who, you know, was working in an art museum, curating the integrity of First Nations practices and doing that kind of cultural work. One hour away, people were having this kind of totally ahistorical story of injustice that was all hooked to the idea of private property and the disintegration of private property. And I think that, you know, that figure keeps appearing throughout as the kind of conceptual beginning that needs to be deconstructed. And I think by the time it gets to infractions, you know, people were, you know, it it makes a difference to the early work and that early kind of resistance movement that the state where I grew up has the weakest First Nations land rights in the country. And so, you know, that kind of pedagogical kind of work around colonisation was totally obvious and totally absent. But once, you know, once you get to the Northern Territory, there are stronger First Nations land rights. And it's also not my context. Like, I haven't spent much time here. So, you know, there's a kind of level of humility that also, you know, is part of it. But I think, you know, particularly when I showed it in Germany, there's such a strong history of kind of radical essay film coming from, you know, the critique of labour and industry that's fully inside of kind of industrial imagination. People really wanted this kind of attention to the mode of production to include my voice and include my body and include more of me like dominating the material. 
And so I kind of put myself fishing in there to say, well, this is, you know, this is the space that I come from and my literacy comes from, you know, my father had a fishing shop. So he got all the gossip about the mining companies just from sitting on the floor of his fishing store and talking to people. And that was my informal kind of capitalist education or industry education. And it's there, I think it's there in the film and it's there in the way that I introduce myself to people which enabled those conversations to happen. But it's just not, to me, it's just not that interesting to put that material in the film. And so I think, you know, Infractions has a much more kind of modest figuration of the settler, but drawing rights is really like aims really hard at that figure to really explain how it's even possible that we aren't talking about the whiteness of private property when we're talking about fracking resistance, anti-fracking movements. Yeah, it's interesting because, yeah, that's actually my, is a follow-up, but it is a question that came to me before, which is the infractions. Infractions is, is very intimate, right? Even though there is this absence of you in the camera, you're very close to the people you're talking to, and I felt very close to them. And that happened at the same time as we have this split screen, and then you have, you know, like the militant, <laughs> that is on militant side, <laughs> some on one side. And then that is that very close connection, which I think it works very nicely because, you know, it, the one side of the screen gives us a kind of information that is crucial to those who don't know much about the context. Uh, helps to locate, you know, the person with whom you are talking, interviewing, you know, they narrate, describe, comment on. So it is a documentary, but it's not, right? It's not the kind of militant documentary. It's something else. So can you say more about your choices there? How did you put those pieces together? I was thinking something else I was thinking about. So like sound. I think there is only music at the end, which is, you know, like live music. As a viewer, to me, that, you know, made it more intimate, actually. But I don't know. So can you comment on this perception mm -hmm. of the film? Yeah, well, I mean, it was also, on the one hand, I'd never made a film before and this is the first time I'd held a camera. And I, you know, I didn't know what I was doing for a bunch of reasons, but also because I refused to know what I was doing before I spoke to all those people about what they might want me to film. So we had these interesting moments where, you know, like I should apply to the land council and give them a map of all the places that I wanted to film. And it was a bit of a standoff because I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give you a map until I've spoken to this woman about what she wants me to film from her own country. You know, so, so on the one hand, it was purposefully unplanned in lots of ways. And really the interviews, the first trip that I made, I made two trips before I filmed anything. And then the first trip that I made filming was literally interviewing people and me thinking based on the interviews, I might figure out what the film would be because it was really their experience of enduring this kind of ongoing investment imaginary that I wanted to capture from the grassroots of their country as cultural workers, you know, as the unpaid cultural workers of this country. I didn't actually know even after that trip that the film would be mostly composed of interviews. But once we sat down in the editing room with my wonderful editor, Sebastian Badersky, I realized, you know, the entire story was in about four people. And if we just kind of edited it properly, that that was the film. And then it required certain footnotes. And he was really useful for kind of interrogate, not interrogating me, but asking me questions to explain certain things. And then once we kind of did that together, the footnotes on the side, they were also initially, there was a question about whether there was going to be a voiceover. So the footnotes on the side are really avoiding a voiceover and, and trying to kind of sit back a bit 
so that if you know enough about the kind of legal history, you actually don't really need to read those footnotes. And the, you know, the faciality of the people is really the main thing carrying you along. The music, it's funny, I, I filmed, you know, because th- these people are constantly organising, so I was kind of following around in a four-wheel drive and Gager and just rung when he said, hey, we're playing at Desert Harmony, why don't you come and film that? And so I went and filmed, you know, they played about six songs at that amazing festival in the middle of the desert. And then when they played that particular song, I knew that that was the end of the film because I had no... I had no way of ending this film, which is right in the middle of a, you know, of a political campaign. And when I heard that, you know, the the hair kind of bristled on the back of my neck and I knew that at least we had an ending because it's such a, it's just such a powerful song and their band is, you know, it, their band does such important work communicating, you know, across different territories and doing quite diplomatic work in that sense. You have answered my following question, which was exactly about about the interviews and how, you know, and how the conversations actually, in a way, whether and how they, as you said, I mean, you, you have answered that. But I found that Dr. Irene Watson's initial framing was quite powerful. In different ways, it wasn't more powerful than that of the other activists, you know, because they all are. I think it was Jack Green who said something about money equals dead land. Was it him? It was Gadrian, yeah. Oh, Gadrian, yeah. At the end. Oh, my God, it's like, it's amazing. So that moment, I mean, what Dr. Watson is talking about in terms of, you know, that is the Australian state law and then Aboriginal law, and also kind of an internationalism that she's talking about. So I was wondering, do you think that now that you finished the film you've made and then have the exhibition made all the, this work, has it become something, I mean, the, I think I'm asking whether the ways in which Dr. Watson is in the film, does it reflect something that came to you as you have been doing in the work or something that you knew intuitively? I wonder if you could say, you know, think in terms of the different laws. And then it's important to say also that the original conception of law is very much tied to culture. There is no separation, right? I mean, it's, it's tied also to existence, unlike you know, the Western one. The, the question is about the legal uh, critique? Yeah, about, about Irene Watson's, you know, framing, because I felt like, in a way, as you're going back to her, in a way, she was providing us with uh, something. And I was wondering if it is something that you always saw as significant, especially thinking of the, the white Australian, right? Or, mm. or if it is something that came out of the war. Yeah. Yeah, her, her book, she's actually being read by some of the organisers as a result of this film. So, I, you know, and I, you know, I wanted Irene to be in there as well because it was, you know, it's not just a local production. It's launched in Europe and I didn't want the film to create kind of theoretical opportunities for people that weren't First Nations legal theorists. Mm-hmm. But aside from that, you know, I think, you know, art space is often a terrible place for thinking about political organising, but it is a good space for thinking about form and abstraction. And I think that happens more. I still think, you know, Australian art schools teach very New York histories of art. And if we're talking about abstraction, like I think those are the abstractions that I think we need to be thinking about in Australian art spaces. And I think My hunch is that, you know, 
there's three particular abstractions. You know, the first is Terran Aurelius, the second is Torrance Title, which in Drawing Rights I referenced, but I was reading a lot of Brenna Bandar's work at that time and Renisa Mawani and Sarah Keenan to think through, you know, the whiteness of private property. But the third one, and the reason I think that Irene Watson was, you know, welcome to talk to me about this project is because I have been paying a lot of attention to the abstractions that make up the corporate form you know, the deep history of finance. And I think there's a certain kind of illiteracy, the kind of white left or progressive left in Australia that's not Indigenous around the relationship of corporations to racism and, you know, the ongoing production of race through the corporation. And, you know, if I'm contributing something, it's trying to put that into conversation with all the First Nations critiques that exist of the other abstractions the city where I grew up, at one point in time, I think it's been kind of owned entirely by a single mining company. So at the moment, it's Shell. It used to be Rio Tinto. Before that, it was Camalco, an American company. And from just that kind of layered history of the reputation of those companies, you get a history of like labour deregulation, but you also get a kind of first-hand story of how each of those corporations have related to First Nations employment and First Nations, you know, legal struggles. And I think there's just not enough, particularly in the cultural industry. I mean, it kind of shocks me that we're cultural workers and we don't know the impact of corporations on, you know, on the culture where we work. So I think that was, yeah, I, I feel like that was my internal conversation with Irene. But, but the actual conversation, you know, was me thinking about how much she could contribute to being the kind of authoritative narrative between all these different locations because it's not, you know, it's a kind of post-invasion possibility that, you know, lets me move around with a camera and connect all these stories up. And I think, you know, her story of the connectivity of country was much more important to kind of platform the connectivity between people. Well, definitely. And I, I think something else that I see, and then I was referring to it at the beginning, is also precisely how, how you bring out that relationship between the state and um, and the corporations, right? In particular, because the state actually owns, right, the subsoil, what's, uh, what is underground, and then what is at stake there. So it, it's not about private property, which is usually one way through which we, we engage in that critique, but it's directly about the state and its ability to really take the land out of indigenous peoples, you know, off their feet literally, and then developing all these, um, these very close relationships with corporations. So I think, yeah, you bring the corporation, but you also bring the state back into the conversation. And I think the colonial, the ways in which coloniality as a mode of governance remains so crucial to, to global capital. And that's why I want to call attention to the fact that it's playing out here, it's playing out in Brazil, I mean, in all different places, and your work brings it together so painfully and, and beautifully too is a combination. A question, you know, for me is particularly because it's a kind of research work that's connected to land defences, right, the, to those people's sovereignty. So there's, there's only so many ways I can appropriately, you know, display it and I'm constantly, you know, updating people on what's happening and, the you know, the film tour includes a budget for First Nations speakers in every location and 
it's trying to land well, but also continue to get permission to exhibit it. And if people don't think it's meaningful to exhibit it anymore, then I won't, you know. But at the moment, the general reaction is basically that the film should be seen more broadly. And so I'm trying to think about, you know, what avenues there are. And then I have to think about publicity in a way that, I, that I've never thought about publicity. And publicity probably is the wrong word, but, you know, networks of breaching a kind of more general or popular or, you know, educational audience that requires a whole lot of strategy around distribution and things like that. So, you know, I'm really experiencing the limits of art space just because it is such a political film, but also, you know, the reason I made the film like that is because I know that, you know, films like this don't go on television. They don't necessarily get into film festivals. And so the art space becomes this kind of residual space of public deliberation or mediation that, you know, symptomatically plays a role it doesn't just because of how kind of obliterated the media is by a kind of corporate disintegration yeah of the public public media space yes but so that there are the art, the art spaces and the classrooms I was thinking I so wanted to show the film to my to my students and it's both because to talk about the political content of the film but also also the ethical decision to put the film together in the way you did, right? That is a that is a risk in doing it, but then there is a decision in doing it. And in a way, I feel like you you let the viewer kind of decide how she's, you know, how she positions herself in relationship to the film. And it may be because the four people did do, you know, what they were supposed to do in there. But yeah. It's difficult. I don't know. What do you think, Denise? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I've sort of been paying attention to how people view view the work in the gallery, and and of course there is this this difference in space and not having the connection that I think the IMA in Brisbane would. But there's immediately in the conversations I've had with viewers a recognition of the connection with BC and and I think most of the people again because or as an artist run space that end up in the gallery have had you know the direct activism to do with the protests against the pipelines and and fracking and what's going on here and so they yeah they just immediately think that they're you know not trying to be convinced by the work but just trying to find yeah just try to find similarities and kind of connect with this idea of just where we are with our own discussions on sovereignty and, and the different political situation with First Nations and having treaties and, and land rights that are quite vastly different from Australia. So that's maybe where I think the viewers are finding how they're being addressed is like, okay, this is the information that I'm picking up rather than than anything about like environmentally. They're already on board and yeah, just yeah. from observations, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm having difficulties trying to convey that, but I think the news you did that, yeah, precisely by describing how people are responding to the exhibition, which is maybe we can call it an abstract in the good sense. There is a, an abstract political space configuration that the film identifies. So it's no longer about who is saying what when or who is doing what when, but it's actually that common, not universal, but common commonality. So that's why I was thinking about here and thinking about Brazil immediately as, you know, as I'm looking at the film. And I, and I think that's what we need more 
than the mere inclusive gesture, you know, which is what I was thinking about when I was answering your initial question, Rachel. There is a gesture of inclusion mm -hmm. that seems it's like it's political, but it's so totally liberal, right? I mean, okay, let's, you know, let's open up. But that's, that is more to be done. And that means to create a space where everyone has to take a position in relationship to political situation, right? Which is racial and colonial. I think the hardest part is knowing when, you know, when you've done enough research in one direction to kind of make the argument that kind of pulls back into the rest of the picture. And that's also why it took so long. But yeah, it, it took so long because it, the thing that hasn't stopped being a problem. But I think, I think within fractions, it was, I think I've said all that I can possibly say about how ridiculous this kind of infrastructure is, because it does just cross a border and repeat the same story from from the side of its operations and so I guess that once it crossed that border from into the Northern Territory I felt like I wanted to cross the border with it and do something against the repetition of the violence of what it, what it repeats I guess so yeah and then the connectivity you know the way the way that the Northern Territory is used you know against First Nations people also on the east coast you know that's also part of the story the cutting can you say more about it? Well, um, working in working in the cultural industry, you know, like there's still a, a hunger for a certain kind of aesthetic capturing of relationships to land that gets aestheticized in certain kinds of paintings that sell much higher than in the last two decades, political Aboriginal art has definitely, you know, reached an international audience also in terms of sales I guess but it's still you know it's still the majority of wealth that gets extracted from from culture is you know white people trading other white people's collections of Aboriginal art and you know when there's an entire industry that's designed to do that and you know no no kind of interest from that industry in saying anything about the destruction of the country from which all those paintings come from you know I think that's also that was also my interest in in thinking about like if that is the work that we're all somehow entangled with, you know, how can we use the art industry to actually talk more about that given that it's already such a, I mean, it's already such an exploitative space and then the people that make the most money from that aestheticization of country are saying absolutely nothing about the threats to that country. And I think that, you know, is quite a kind of remarkable degree of complicity, I think. I think that connects to what Denise put in the chat. Not Denise about abstraction, extraction, dematerialization, mm. but that is asking you to talk about the wall drawing in relation to the works for mapping and connecting dematerialization. I, I know you can see the question, but. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I thought, you know, if, if the film is an hour long and it purposefully is slowly moving through people's land, it will take people a while to figure out that they want to watch it or not. and just putting that map on the wall, it kind of, you know, it's whatever it's representing, it's quite a shocking amount of space, you know, on that continent. And mm -hmm. so if people kind of see the map and they've never, they've never seen a map before with that amount of mineral licenses on it, I don't think, because the people that follow this stuff, you know, follow it intensely. And then if you're not keeping up, you kind of don't follow it at all. Like you just have a vague understanding that something's happening outside of the capital cities and that's it. So, I mean, it's actually quite a scary image but I also make it really clear that half of it is completely fictional 
So the, you know, the yellow spaces have been approved, but they're not necessarily being fracked. So they've been approved for fracking, but not necessarily being fracked. And then the blue spaces are places where a mining company has very easily submitted an application to the government to say, I would like to be the company that has the rights to frack there. But in some of those places, there isn't even any minerals underground. It's just how easy it is to lodge an application. So they smothered the Northern Territory up to 80% of the land with mineral applications once the kind of shale boom took off in the US. And it's only in the last, you know, it's only since 2014, I think, that the land councils have come back and said, well, actually, like, you're creating a lot of work for us <laughs> with how easy it is to submit these applications. So, you know, let's, let's get real about where the actual gas is. So it gives you an idea of how easy it is to mine the country because, you know, if you get on the internet, I think any layperson can actually just log in and look at kind of mineral prospecting website to see, you know, what's available for extraction. And I think that's the degree of access for that kind of speculation is quite exaggerated here, I think. So two things. So, but then the companies pay, right? The government when they apply. So it's a source of revenue. Yeah, if, it, if the companies pay for the license to extract Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, so the government gets income from that. But most of these companies pay zero tax and most of the actual gas, like when the first approvals happened, there was no domestic reserve policy. So even all the gas that's being extracted from the country goes offshore and there's no promise that the company will give any gas to the domestic market. And it's mm-hmm. under the principle of the shortage that comes from the totality of exports from the first approvals, there's a fiction that there's a gas shortage and so the rest of the country is supposed to frack their gas because all of the gas on the East Coast is going to the kind of Asian market. So they, when the, in the, this place where they buy the license, but then nobody knows if there's gas, that is always the possibility of something being there that they can extract, one could think. Yeah, technically that's a real space of contention because technically they're not allowed to change their mind about what they're extracting and they should Uh apply for a new licence. But some of the early approvals of gas licences were old licences laid out for something else or, you know, for conventional gas mining, for example. There's a first case of Butchler people in in the Wideberry area in, in central Queensland just below Gladstone. It was the first case in Australia where First Nations won the cancelling of old licences based on free prior informed consent. They said that they hadn't been consulted about the new form of the industry. I think there are old conventional gas licences. You know, they won that. It was a new precedent in terms of international law, but, you know, hopefully it will have some impact on some other cases. But so far that's the only instance where people have been successful in getting those old licences outmoded. And how about water, underground water? How much of it is in that part of Australia? I'm asking because I was in Texas in um, Marfa, which is southwest Texas. And mm-hmm. it's a region with lots of fracking, right? I mean, the ranchers making even more money with fracking. But it's also, so, but fracking is taking place in one of the largest, I forgot the term you use, like, there's lots of water there, you know, like, I think most of the water in the U.S. is in there. The thing that amazed me is how little control the U.S. government office supposedly monitors it and how they do it, which is basically, there is a little instrument which says if there was contamination, but then if that happens, all the water will be destroyed. 
But my question in regards to Australia has to do with the fact that I'm just wondering if there is also water in these places where, you know, the blue areas in the map. Mm. Yeah, uh, I mean, water is the main the main story, really. So fracking is very water intensive and it's it's unprecedented in how water intensive it is. So, so they need to go to a place where there's underground water to use the water as a kind of tool, which they put chemicals into to create more pressure for the drilling. And then, you know, they, they use clean water to toxify the land, essentially. And then that toxic water is waste that they don't know. They still don't know how to deal with it because it's too expensive to fully reprocess. But the story, you know, obviously the water was already over-extracted from the pastoral industry. And then over the top of, you know, that story, the mining companies, not just the fracking industry, but most mining companies get free water licences. So the pastoral industry gets very upset that the miners get free water and, and they have to kind of trade water. But the whole idea of, you know, privatised water training came from US consultancies in the early 1980s and was sold to the Australian government as a way to deal with increased industry. So that that model was used on the East Coast to create like a water market between farmers and mines on the East Coast. And it's already sent the Murray-Darling River system dry. It's, it's a complete disaster. And the same people that are managing that are now planning to privatise and trade the water in the Northern Territory, not just for fracking, but also for big mega cotton okay, farms. Yeah. So they, they may not do any fracking, but they have access to the underground water in there. Well, I think, I mean, I think they need to do what they say they're doing, but I think the risk to water is the kind of general part of the story. Okay. And it's, it is quite wild because it's such a, you know, like the water in, in the Northern Territory it comes from a kind of the El Nino system that hovers. I mean, you've kind of did a bit of thinking around this with Arjuna, I think, but the El Nino system is not an annual water system. It's like, you know, four or five year drought that then turns into a flood and then the desert completely floods. And the, you know, the settler kind of imagination gets very upset that that water dribbles down into the underground system rather than gets captured by dams and, and farms. And so the, this fantasy of stealing the water from the desert is actually a 19th century idea. Like as soon as people saw how the desert was flooding, it became this story of capture that's existed, you know, and been abandoned for how kind of farcical it is to kind of program and manage that degree of ancient and very wild flooding and monsoonal and underground flows. I think there's a moment in the film where you look on the left-hand side, there's this really analogue image of underground water right next to a spring that's at risk of fracking. And then you see, you know, like right over the top of that are all these kind of ambitious mining plans. And their way of dealing with threats to the underground water flow is to put a barrier of two kilometres around major cities and towns, you know, and the whole, you know, the whole kind of First Nations literacy is about the connectivity of all those places and how to find water in all, in all those places from the underground system. And so, that yeah, the relationship of that level of ambition to a total kind of lack of empiricism I just find really, like, negatively fascinating just because of how much they won't control. And the, the plants, you know, the fracking rigs and the waste ponds, they're not going to even cover those. And so they're just going to be massively flooded if they put those waste ponds there. But it's also the thing about the frontier, right? It's a frontier, but it's not one for settlement. It makes me think of the Amazon in Brazil. There is no settlement. There is only extraction. And then, of course, you know, and then the waste and the, and the destruction stays with the indigenous population, right? I think that's what we see happening 
again, more intensively than, than for a while. While industrial capital was leading the thing, wasn't so intense or so obvious, but now seems to be so obvious because, you know, because the computers and need minerals, right? I mean, you need all kinds of things to have this virtual life that we do. But yeah, that aspect, which again brings back, I think, that relationship, this intimacy between these corporations and the state, in which the state allows them to do things, serves their interests, but that doesn't have any obligation to protect them, because also because they are not in there. But then when doing so, the state is obviously failing to protect, you know, its territory, which is then, is I don't know, there is a shift in the state and in that strategic economic connection, which, um, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the point about settlement, like historically it has been a place of frontier settlement and there are, you know, pastoral properties on some of the driest land, you know, in the, in the Northern Territory. So, so I think what... What you're pointing to is, you know, the difference of the moment is also, you know, the politicians that are making it easy for the corporations to yeah. do this or, the, you know, the degree of state power that's making it easy is surprising, you know, settler citizenship because there is just this assumption that it was settled as a frontier and a new frontier will come along and unsettle it and people just move where the money is and leaving First Nations people, you know, to defend their country. I think there is this fantasy that, you know, it will develop you know it's a sacrifice zone fantasy and I think it surprises me that it surprises settlers you know to be in that space that has been a differently organized sacrifice zone where it's just reorganizing itself so that they can't live there anymore and that's when they're starting to think about corporate power and and calling it you know foreign ownership when actually the history of the country is a history of foreign ownership you know the whole notion of ownership is foreign right I mean that's (laughs) That's what inflection is nice. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much, uh, Rachel and Denise, for that conversation. It's really great just to hear, as always, two people that are intelligent and really aware of each other's work and and have been thinking alongside and together for for a while to to talk and just to sit in and listen in was I've enjoyed it very much. So thanks again. Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. This has been the first installment of the Gas Imaginary Conversations, released on Below the Radar in partnership with the Or Gallery. Thanks for listening to Rachel O'Reilly in conversation with Denise Ferreira da Silva. You can find out more about the Gas Imaginary in the links in the show notes. And stay tuned for the second discussion, releasing in two weeks.